0: Well, church, it is great to see you guys again today. Uh, this is a first time, or first time in a long time. We started this series back in the fall, and so we've been going through it for a little while. We're going to continue in the summer. It's on the life of Jesus Christ from eternity past all the way to eternity still future, and we are continuing in that a little bit today. So we've moved past the teaching ministry and some of the parables and, and the storytelling ministry of Jesus, and we're kind of getting into some of the different encounters uh, that he had with various people. Now, uh, to be fair, most of the encounters that Jesus had were pretty positive experiences, right? Like uh, people followed him, they loved him, and, and he, there's a lot of miracles that were involved. There's a lot of freedom. Uh, There's a lot of uh, positive things that took place when a lot of different people that we're going to be looking at in the series had their encounters with Jesus. This is not one of those weeks uh, that was one of those positive, uplifting, uh, wonderful encounters. This is one of these weeks, uh, we're going to be in Matthew 23, where Jesus takes the entire chapter to essentially rebuke the religious hypocrisy of a large group of people. And so, I don't know if you've ever experienced this this thing where it's just think about the person in your life who you might describe as probably the nicest, most kind hearted person that you, you possibly know. And, and then all of a sudden, this is the time that they, they kind of, they lose their, I mean, they just get angry, it comes out, and it's so out of the blue a little bit that you're kind of going, okay, I don't know what the, what, what's going on, but because it's so out of character, so um, abnormal of a thing, like whatever that thing may be, I know it's probably a really big deal, right? That's kind of what we're going to be seeing here in this text. And so I was looking at this passage, I was thinking a little bit of, I, th- like that person in my life is my dad. I could easily describe him as probably one of the more kind-hearted people I've ever known in, in my entire life. Growing up, I was laughing with my brother this past week. I think probably the worst thing we heard him say was fiddlesticks, right? Like, I don't know. Anybody else's, anybody else's dad say that? I'm like, dad, dad, that's not even a real thing, right? I, I don't even know what that is. And so, uh, not kidding. We were out in the backyard one time, and he's in, the, he's in the garage hammering away at something. He just jacks his thumb with a hammer. And literally, the thing that he screams at the top of his lungs is, Fiddlesticks, and I was like, I, I—that is unbelievable restraint, because no one else in the world would would, have, would say that word coming out right then and there. Um, but but that's kind of what it is, and so he didn't get angry a whole lot. And when it happened, it was one of these things that makes you pay attention. I was thinking back to I was probably five years old, and we were growing up in the Presbyterian church at the time, and. Um, it was Palm Sunday. And so it was one of those Sundays you come to the front as all the kids and pastor does a little thing. I tried that one time here, only one time. We've got like 250 kids here, so that doesn't really work in these settings. And, uh, um, yeah, so it was one of those Sundays, pastor hands me a, a little uh, palm branch and I get to be the one that's kind of waving it around a little bit. And I noticed, hey, when five-year-olds do that, it's pretty cute and you get a reaction from the crowd and stuff. And it started like soaking it up and eating it up a little bit and being like, all right everybody's kind of laughing and enjoying this a little bit. And I'm the one holding this little branch. And I start dancing with the thing. And like people are like, ha ha ha, cute little kid. I, I think that's what they're saying anytime. And so I started like eating it up and I started to interact with the crowd a little bit and go down in the aisles. And I started doing somersaults down the aisle <laughs> because people were enjoying it a little bit. And just unbelievable narcissism as a five-year-old, right? You think the whole world's about you. And, but I remember jumping up, and, like, everybody's kind of laughing around. I think they are probably laughing at what I had coming that afternoon. Um, but <laughs> either way, I thought it was, you know, a great thing as a five-year-old. And I looked up and just made eyes with my dad. And, and like, that's the only thing you have to do. You know who that parent is? The, either your dad or your mom. They had the eyes. You know what I'm talking about, The eyes. You don't even need to say anything, but you just, they give you the eye, and immediately you're crushed inside, and you're like, okay, I'm whatever, i I'm stopping what I'm doing. It's exactly what happened. All he had to do was just give you the eye, and immediately I just stopped what I was doing, get back in line, and you fall into place. Like this is what twenty-three, chapter 23 of Matthew is going to feel like. This is so out of character, not out of character at all, but it's so unusual for Jesus. And this is going to be one of these subtle, uh, just kind of, um, humbling times for a group of Pharisees. And so church, like there's just not a whole lot that brings out the fire in Jesus quite like the hypocrisy of people who say that they know and they say that they love him. And so again, that's, like, that's what we're gonna be seeing here in this text. Here's the tension I wanna deal with today. The tension I wanna deal with is very simply this. Church, how in the world do you and I maintain the pursuit of this high calling, following this holy God who is perfect in all of his ways and calls us to be Christ-like as well. How in the world do we go after that pursuit and not fall into the same uh, temptations and trappings that the Pharisees fall into in this chapter, this massive, massive hypocrisy that brings out the fire in Jesus? That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Matthew 23 is where we are. So if you have your Bibles, want to go ahead and turn there, you can go ahead and do that. Um, Let me remind you where we are in the text. If you were here last week, this is a continuation of where we were last week in pretty much the exact same setting as Matthew 22. And so if you remember, uh, this is the last week of Jesus' life just before the crucifixion. Palm Sunday already took place. On Monday, he goes into the temple. He overturns the tables. It's kind of confrontation number one. That was going to be the other exception to the happy encounters with Jesus. Um, He turns over the the, the tables that are there. And, of course, this is going to bring about a lot of anger on behalf of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the religious elite. Because Jesus is coming into the temple, and he's usurping his authority in that moment. People are beginning to recognize he is the Messiah. You remember that timing is a major part in Jesus' ministry. Remember early on in his ministry, he does miracles and all these different things. And they're saying, hey, you are the Messiah, the son of the God. And he's saying, you're right, but let's keep that quiet right now. He knows that as soon as word gets out, people begin saying these things that all of a sudden the cross is going to be right ne- right after that, and there's work to be done in the, in, in the meantime. And so this is the last week. And so the word is out. He's the Messiah. He's not denying it anymore. He's usurping his authority. Chapter 22, religious leaders are not very happy about that. Pharisees and Sadducees, two competing uh, religious groups, one with political power, other with social power. They're going to come, and they're going to try to catch Jesus in all of his words. And so they put him through this series of tests. Uh, Jesus is patient through it all, and he answers them masterfully. And then he wraps it up in chapter 22 with the great commandment. Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? What is the the thing that you want us to do more than anything else? There's 613 commands in, in the entire New Testament. What can we focus on here? Because we're not going to be doing all 613. And you remember what he says, love the Lord your God. All your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And they're sitting there going, okay, that's fantastic. We got that part down. We're Pharisees. We know religion. We know loving God. Uh, And then he goes, okay, well, here's the second one. Love your neighbor as yourself. And that's what's going to lead us into, essentially, chapter 23. After that, he asked them a question that's going to get them thinking about who the Messiah really is. And it's going to be revealing the fact um, that they don't understand what the Messiah came to bring, that he's fully God, fully man, that it is Jesus Christ in the flesh. And so that's what's going to lead to a lot of their religious hypocrisy there in chapter 23. So now he's about to start calling it out and calling them to the carpet here. Check out what he says in verse 1. And then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, Well, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they love to sit in Moses' seat. Now, anybody know what Moses' seat is? Uh, To be fair, I never cared about what Moses' seat was before. Uh, A few weeks back, I happened to be in Israel, got a picture of literal, physical Moses' seat uh, in the synagogue. So that's there in Chorazin. To the right, you're going to see remnants of a fourth century synagogue that was kind of syncretistic in nature. They were not uh, Jewish fully, they were not Christian fully, they were pagan in a lot of different ways. Nevertheless, there's remnants right there to the left. That is literally, physically, the seat of Moses. It was called that because uh, that's where the Pharisees and teachers of the law, it was a special seat of honor. They would go sit there at the front. Uh, and they would be in the place of Moses as the authority uh, on the law. And so what he's going to be saying here is like, you guys love to sit in the seat of Moses. You love the place of prominence. You love the place of honor. You love the fact that everybody knows you and reveres you, and you're the smart one in the crowd, okay? And so that's kind of what he's going to be saying right here. Um, and so he says there in verse 3, so you must be careful to do everything that they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach, which, of course, is the essence of hypocrisy, right? You're preaching one thing and lifting it up, um, and you're doing something completely different. In other words, you're railing against sexual sin. In the meantime, you're engaging in it yourself. Uh, You're a parent who's railing your kids for the things that are coming out of their mouth. Meanwhile, they learn those exact same words from you, right? (laughs) So, like, you're not practicing what you preach. It's hypocrisy 101 right there. Verse 4, it's going to say that they tie up heavy, cumbersome loads, And they put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger in order to move them. In other words, they are demanding more of the people that they are teaching than they're willing to do themselves. In other words, they are preaching this works-based law, which no one is able to fulfill in and of themselves. And and therefore, they are putting this giant burden on the people that they're supposed to care for at that point in time. Verse 5 says that everything that they do is done for people to see. You ever see this before? Has it ever been the case where we like being religious on Sunday and not so much on Monday? When the crowds are gathered, when there's um, social benefits to me being at the church, I'm all about being really, really religious, and then when it may cost me something in the middle of the week, it's I'm just kind of gone and out of there. I mean, these are the people that um, they're not going to be praying unless there's a crowd around them making them pray. These are the people that... Um, They're not going to be giving unless they can post about it on social media or have a news article about how generous they are or the ribbon-cutting ceremony or something like that. Otherwise, they're not going to be giving in anything. Everything that they do is for other people to see. In verse 6, it says that they love the place of honor. I like like this one. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. In other words, they like sitting on Moses' seat. They love uh, all the titles. They love the recognition. I'll never forget, years ago, I was invited to... um, speaking to this, this church, this little conference and stuff that we were, we were kind of doing. And, and uh, as one of the speakers, they had these special, like, nice seats up on the stage for us to come sit in and think TBN here a little bit, right? Okay, we got the golden thrones up there, and, uh, and, and, and you're up there. And I was, remember thinking, I was like, this is the most awkward setting I can possibly imagine, right? This isn't what we do here. Like, this is just, it just seems really, really weird to be sitting up here uh, when everybody is right around here and And uh, it was just a very, by the way, church, like this is an entire culture that churches are built on today, right? Like there's a way to do church and there's a way to do leadership and stuff that makes it all about the leader speaking to self here in a lot of different ways, right? There's a way to do church that is all about um, building up the own honor culture where everybody recognizes and reveres who pastor is, who the leaders are, who the elders are. And we make sure that you are lifting that up and that you leave this place thinking, wow, what an incredible person that guy is. Like There's an entire culture that is being built around that kind of a thing right there that is saying, hey, you know what? I love the time and attention. I love some sort of notoriety. And I'm going to speak and preach in such a way that's going to make sure that you all know how awesome this is up here. And so there's a lot that goes on inside of the church. And then there's a lot that goes into um, a a lot of different motivations and stuff that, that, that come to the same thing. And he's saying, hey, like These people over here, you religious elite, like you love the place of honor at banquets. You love it when people revere who you are. And let me be really clear. like Honor is not problematic in and of itself. It's just the pursuit of your own honor is a whole other story, right? Honoring other people, fantastic deal. Pursuing it on your own, not so much. And it's what he's saying. You love the most important seats in the synagogues. Um, it may even be lay people who leave a church because the leadership isn't naming a building after you. Uh, publicly recognizing you enough, playing the political game enough. That's what he's talking about right here. Verse 11, he goes in and he reminds him right here. Check this out. He says, the greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. I remember sitting there like as it laid in high school, beginning to walk with the Lord and and started to kind of realize a number of different things. And I remember reading this passage, just being one of the first verses that I tried to commit to memory, because I remember reading this verse and just kind of just being struck like dead in my tracks right there going, wow, like that is so not who I am. Like, Lord, I'm, Father, I, I, I'm that five-year-old kid that loves the limelight, that loves doing somersaults down the aisle, loves people's attention and praise, loves being the center of attention. And I remember personally reading this kind of going, okay, God, oh my gosh, Father, do not ever let me get to this place where you're going to need to do the humbling for me. God, let let me not get to this place where I'm going to be on such a high horse and on such this, this thing that is all about me, where you see fit to take me down a notch. Father, would you just humble me right now? in this place. God, let me not become self-absorbed or self-exalting or anything of that nature. This is a very, very terrifying passage. Circle chapter 11 and 12. He who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The greatest among you will be your servant. He continues from here on out, and there's a number of different woes here in this passage. Um, there's seven or eight of them, depending upon your translation. Fourteen may not be um, original, Nevertheless, it's legit. Uh, he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. He says, You guys shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in other people's faces. Verse 15, uh, You hypocrites, you travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you've succeeded, you make him twice as much a child of hell as you are. Church, did you catch what he just said right there? Uh, you guys, we, we, you, you do missions. You will travel over land and sea. You will go and, and do all these different things. And when one person becomes a convert, you're gonna celebrate in all these things. And in the middle of the way that you're passing on the faith, in the middle of the way that you are doing evangelism, in the way that you are uh, discipling other people, you are making them just as much a child of hell as you are. In other words, church, um, the end does not justify the means. You ever heard anybody kind of say, hey, if just one person comes along and is saved today, then it's all gonna be worth it. It's not what Jesus is saying here. He's saying that the means actually matter. The end does not justify the means. There's a way to go about the means of your evangelism, of your mission strategy, of your discipleship over here, whereby, hey, you may get one convert that comes to your side, fantastic, but you're turning them into just as much a child of hell as you actually are too. And he's saying, woe to you Pharisees and you hypocrites, because that's what you're passing on down the line. He continues in 23, and I love this. He says, you give a tenth of your spices, your mint, your dill, your cumin, um, right? They're tithing spices right here. We don't really do that here. I'm grateful you're not putting this stuff in the offering plate, um, right? But church, like this is what you're doing. You're giving a tenth of what you have. That's what they did. They're giving a tenth of what they had. And you're doing that here, but here's what he says. Circle this one. But you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, mercy and faithfulness. I'm so grateful that you are tithing, and you're giving a tenth of what you have, but you, in doing so, you have neglected the greater, the higher priority matters of the law that are going on right here. Justice, and mercy, and faithfulness. Verse 24, you blind guides, you strain out a gnat, and you swallow a camel. In other words, you major on the minors, you minor on the major's Verse 27, you are empty, whitewashed tombs. You look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, you're full of dead bones and everything that's unclean. Woe to you, you teachers of the law, you Pharisees and hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophets, and you decorate the graves of the righteous. But you also say, if we had lived in those days, if we had lived back then, we never would have participated in the same things that they did in in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Church, you ever do that? You ever notice how hypocrisy is so much easier to spot in other people? Or how hypocrisy is so much easier to spot at some point in the past, maybe previous generations or something like that? I mean, you ever do this even when you're looking at the word of God yourself? I do this all the time. I'm like, Peter, how in the world could you have denied knowing Jesus? Like, where were you on that one, dude? I mean, like, you, you were with him. You were in the inner circle. You saw the miracles. You sat there and said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, yes, you are Peter. Upon this rock, I will establish my church, this declaration that thou art the Christ. Like, you were right there. You walked on water. Are you kidding me? And now you're denying Jesus? I never would have done what you did. Thomas, what in the world, bro? Uh, You're not going to believe in the resurrection unless you stick your fingers inside these open wounds? Like, no one else needs that kind of thing done for you, you baby, you child. What's wrong? Never would have done the Israel How in the world can you be grumbling and complaining about manna and and, and doves coming from heaven when you've just been freed from the bondage of slavery? How in the world are you so whiny? How in the world are you grumbling and complaining when God has just set you free? I never, ever, ever, ever would have done these kinds of things. And what Jesus is saying is not only would you probably have done the exact same thing if you were in the exact same scenario, but you're guilty of brand new hypocrisies today. Church, like hypocrisy is not a problem that is confined to the past. Like, this isn't a problem of previous generations that we've grown out of. It's not a problem just for the Pharisees and these religious elite that were sitting there around Jesus at that point in time. Like, this is a problem that has plagued humanity, whether you're religious or not, from the very beginning of time. I mean, late in 2017, the Huffington Post came out with this article. It grabbed my attention. But the headline simply said this, Exposing America's Biggest Hypocrites... Evangelical Christians. I remember seeing that. Anybody see this article? Honestly, there's a hundred others that are exactly like it. Uh, but I remember reading that probably late in 2017 going, wow. The gut, I, wow. And picking it up and going, okay, what are we talking about here? Largest hypocrites in the country here? And I remember reading some of this article and, and, and getting through with it, kind of going, okay, well, we're not that off base. I mean, anyone read the news in the past 40 years? In the early 80s, what was it? It was Jim Baker and it was, a, it was a dozen other televangelists that were all caught up in financial scandal, fame and fortune, sexual assault cases, things of that nature. Not even a year ago, it was Pennsylvania, a 1,000 children abused by Catholic priests. Three, what, six, eight weeks ago now, maybe it was the Houston Chronicle. You remember this one, 20 years, 700 assault victims in the Southern Baptist Convention. Maybe it was the Fort Worth Star-Telegram and the Independent Baptist Church that they were kind of uncovering a bunch of stuff there. And we're not just talking about leaders, we're not just talking about the main people at the top that had the titles and, and things of that nature, we're talking about leaders that were elevated from within the church body that also saw fit to abuse the power that they were also given at that point in time. Church, honestly, is it, any que- is it any wonder why hypocrisy is the number one stated reason why young people are walking away from the church today? I mean, David Kenneman writes about this, 2012, his book Unchristian. The whole Barna research team, pretty much every article you read from them is going to be saying the exact same things, but they're going to acknowledge that 85% of non-believers who are under 30 years old believe that you and I are hypocrites. Can we just think about that for a second? Because I think sometimes we, we hear statistics and, and, and all numbers sound the same. I'm not a numbers guy. That's how it kind of processes in my mind. I'm like 85%. That's unbelievable, staggering proportion of people that believe that about us. In other words, the majority of people that you talk with outside of there, when they find out that you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and belong to some sort of a conservative evangelical denomination of faith here, they automatically assume that you're a hypocrite who does not practice what they preach. It's exactly the problem. And we see the problem right here in verse 13, right? I mean, he says it. He says, Woe to you, you teachers of the law, you Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven inside people's faces. We, we know this about hypocrisy. We know that this is the greatest credibility killer you and I could possibly participate in, that we would practice not what we preach, that we would not align with the things that come outside of our mouth. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven uh, to other people who are trying to get in. Meanwhile, you're probably not even getting in yourself to some cases right over there. It's exactly what he says in verse 13. Like we know how heavy this problem is and we know whether you're agreeing with every little um, Example of what it may be, you know, regardless of that, that it is still a problem which plagues the church. I mean, it continued to talk, and uh, the article went on about the racial problems that are continuing to tear apart our country today. And it talked about how, hey, Christians, you are the ones that are propagating this message of reconciliation. You're the one talking about this gospel of, hey, God has reconciled us vertically with the Father through the Son, Jesus Christ, filled us with the Holy Spirit, and then he's reconciled us horizontally with one another. That is the message that you're preaching over and over and over again. Then when it comes to having this conversation about the continued problems of racism in our culture today, we're sitting there kind of going, no, 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 no. no, I don't want anything to do with it. We're not willing to listen. I remember a year ago, uh, it was right around the uh, 50th anniversary of Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination. Uh, The Gospel Coalition was hosting a conference there um, honoring him. It was all about racial reconciliation, bringing churches from every single color across the country together. It was a beautiful conference. I'll never forget what Matt Chandler had to say as he brought this thing up, and and he he acknowledged the tension here. He said this. He said, if I preach on the subject of justice, my inbox is going to be filled with praise that I'd even broach the topic. If I apply this subject to race, then all of a sudden I'm a Marxist or I've been watching way too much of the liberal media. If I preach on abortion, I'm applauded as courageous, a ferocious man of God. If I speak about race, then I'm being too political. If I quote Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, I can count on getting praise even though he was horribly anti-Semitic in his latter years. If I quote Martin Luther King Jr., my inbox is filled with comments about his gross immorality or that, again, I'm once again being too liberal, like somehow racial equality were only a liberal political matter and not something that is central to the heart of the gospel. And what he's acknowledging here is that this is a message that we will talk about and boast about all the time. He's a reconciling God vertically with one, with, with, between us and the Father and horizontally with one another. Yet, when it comes to the subject matter, it is such a loaded subject that we can't even talk about it with peers and people within the body of Christ who are crying out, Injustice, Injustice, Injustice. The article, it didn't stop there. That's not just one of the, that's just one of many million different examples It continued to talk about the number of different acceptable sins in our culture today. And we we know this. We know that we're not giving equal weight to everything that God has given to us in the entirety of scripture. Uh, It talked about the, the, the common sins like greed and materialism and pride and narcissism and crude or demeaning talk. Things that every single one of us would reprimand our children if they engaged in, that every single one of us would acknowledge our sinful before a holy God, yet yeah, these happen to be kind of the B-team sins that really aren't that big a deal. And to some degree, church, I think we understand some of this tension, right? right? We align with the holy God. We align with Jesus Christ, who is perfect in all of his ways, and we're called to follow him in all of these different kinds of things. In other words, it's, it, it's almost an impossible task, right? Right? I mean, even Paul's going to acknowledge the the difficulty of this task. He's going to say, I I find this thing inside of me that I I hate. I do what I don't want to do. I don't do the things that I really want to do. In other words, like there's this tension inside of me. There's this problem called sin. I'm being sanctified, redeemed, and made holy. I am not there right now. And I see this thing inside of me where I want to do so much more than I'm capable of doing inside of me. And granted, church, like as we talk about the subject matter, like, uh, yes, there may be progress. We may be learning from things in the past. We may be learning from the sins of our fathers. But at the end of the day, we have to acknowledge that we still have not arrived yet. In the same vein as the Apostle Paul, there are things that I do not do, which I would love to do. There are things that I'm not aware of, which I would love to be aware of. There are things that I am practicing, and they don't align with the things that I preach, and we have not fully arrived yet church there's nothing new underneath the sun it's not a problem back with Israel it's not just a problem for the Pharisees Um, it's not just a problem for uh, the early 1900s the 50s or 60s it's a problem for us today and it's exactly what Jesus is saying right here we're closing the door of the kingdom to the next generation that's coming in right here and so here's what Jesus says in this text and I don't want us to miss this he says two very very simple things he says humble yourself number one Or else he's going to do it for you. That's verse 11. The greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. And number two, do not neglect the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Church, does this sound familiar at all to you? Have you heard this anywhere else in the entirety of Scripture? Pretty much week after week after week after week as we go throughout this Bible I mean, Isaiah, I, I, I mean, it is constantly Micah 6 8. You remember this time in Israel's history is just before the Assyrian captivity. Things are not going well for Israel. They're, they're in the same place as the Pharisees. Hypocritical religious practice. They're not, they're, they're not practicing what they preach. The judgment of God is about to come upon them, right? And you, and you know this is going to come upon them through the Assyrian captivity, right around 722 B.C. And the prophet Micah, he cries out to God a little bit before this takes place. And he says, okay, God, like, what do you want from us? What do you actually want us to do? And you remember this famous little verse. It's very, very simple, but he goes three things. Here's what I want you to do do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with the Lord. That's it. Be humble. Be humble. I, I, that, that's it. Just, just stop being a hypocrite and be humble about, about what's, what's really true about your relationship with the Lord. So contrary to popular thought, like you can pursue a high calling. You can be a follower of a holy God. You can believe in absolute moral truth. All he's saying is simply be humble about it, which, by the way, is contrary, again, to how the world will talk about it today. I was reading an article from Psychology Today uh, that was making the case that uh, if you believe in absolute moral truth, if you believe in objective, eternal truth, as in a monotheistic view of God, some sort of external view of truth, uh, you cannot help being a hypocrite because you will not be consistent, which is exactly why so many in our world today are trying to make truth this thing which you discover from within yourself. It used to be the case where truth is something that exists outside of you, Um, There is a God, he spoke, the world came into existence, he has authority, he divines truth, Uh, he wrote the rules, he defined how everything, it used to be that truth existed outside of you, and it is our job and responsibility, sort of, to come into into understanding of what that truth may be, and then come into submission to that that now truth. And so that's not how things are happening today. Today, you're going to hear things like discover the truth, which is inside of you. Or you're going to hear things like, oh, that's true for you, and this is true for me. I'm so glad that that religion is true for you, that that way of life is true for you. It's not what's true for me. And what Jesus is saying here is like, you don't actually have to ditch out on an objective view of truth or a high call, high view, high standard of morality, or even this high calling of being a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is perfect in all of his ways. All you need to do is simply be humble about it. You need to remember who it is that you are in light of who he is and everything that he has done on your behalf. I mean, just stop boasting about everything that you've achieved and start, start boasting about everything that you've received. Like that you have not gained anything for yourself. It's what Paul's going to talk about when he says, it is a trustworthy statement, one worthy of full acceptance that Christ came into this world to die for sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Church, what would it be like if that is how we talked about the gospel and everything that I live for and everything that's true about my life? Like this is the Apostle Paul, the author of the majority of the New Testament, the greatest missionary that the world has ever known. And he's simply sitting there kind of going like, this is not about my righteousness. This is not about the fact that I've nailed this, that, and the other or the fact that the Holy Spirit is using me to write a book which is going to last until for the, for the, Jesus returns again. It is not about those things. I know who I am. I am the foremost of sinners and I'm in desperate need of God's grace, which he has lavished upon me every single day. Philippians 3.3, I love how he talks about it. He says, it is we who boast in Jesus Christ and we put no confidence whatsoever in the flesh. Church, like what would it look like? Would hypocrisy be an issue if that's what we boasted about and that's how we talked about the gospel? that the world had no confusion about what it is we believe about the gospel. Church, if you ask the average non-believer today what Christianity is, what are they going to tell you? You're more good than you are bad. You're self-righteous people that you think that you know the right way. You have a moral code. You're able to do better than other people. That's why they believe that we're hypocrites over here. Like, what would it look like if we were people that boasted in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that I, like Paul, and the foremost among sinners, desperately in need of his grace, for God to come and do in and through me, for me, through Jesus Christ, that which I could not do for myself. I mean, Paul's going to be making this case, and he's going to be saying, look, if any of you have any reason to boast, it's me. Right, He's going to say that, circumcised on the eighth day, the people of the tribe of, Israel, of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, and regarded the law, I was a Pharisee. In other words, I knew it, and I tried my darndest to be able to observe it. Uh, as for zeal, I persecuted the church. As for righteousness, based on the law, I was pretty much faultless. In other words, I had that thing down. And listen to how he thinks about it. He simply says this. He says, none of what I have has, has anything to do with me. I consider it all garbage that I may gain Christ to be found in Jesus Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness that comes from God. In other words, church, like none of what I have has anything to do with me. It has all been gifted to me in Jesus Christ. I am righteous because Christ has declared that I am righteous because I am covered in the blood of Jesus Christ, and he has gifted me this righteousness here. I mean, there's, it's why he says that it is not by works of righteousness, but it is according to God's mercy that he saved us. Church, where would we be if all we boasted about was the incredible amount of grace that we received in him? That I was lost and dead in my sins, hostile in mind, and engaged in evil deeds. And in the middle of that place, God in his infinite love sent his son, Jesus Christ, to come and to live the righteous, holy life that I was not ever able to live And die a death upon a cross so that I might have life with him for all of eternity. What if that was a thing that we boasted about so that there was no confusion about where we stand before God? I like Paul and the chief among sinners, but praise God Almighty that God in his infinite love has given me grace. It's a call to humble yourself and to step back off that stage and to step back off that high horse and to be able to say, you know what? Yeah, I've sinned against you, my brother. My sister, I'm wrong. You're right. I'm not, I don't always practice what I preach. You're right. I'm ignorant in a lot of the things that I do. And I want to learn and I want to grow. He just simply says, humble yourself and stop boasting like it's about anything that you've achieved. He continues, and the second thing that he says is just don't forget the greater laws of justice, of mercy, and of faithfulness. Church, are you okay talking about justice and injustice today I mean I, is the, is the word a trigger for you that kind of makes you what, immediately want to put the fingers in the ears and just be like, nope, not going there i mean I've, I, I, I've noticed that there's this thing within our within our culture within um, our traditions and things like there are some trigger words that are out there and like Sometimes we, you talk about justice and injustice, and all of a sudden, like that's the thing that we stick our fingers in our ears about and say, nope, I'm not having that conversation. Nope, you're wrong about that. I heard somebody rail about it, and they were completely wrong on that, so I've got nowhere to learn on this whole thing. And I've noticed some of the tension. I think we've all noticed some of the tension, right? You talk about justice, and the problem in talking about justice is that we don't all mean the exact same thing by it. Right? The left defines justice one way, and the right defines justice another way. The left has one set of solutions for how to solve the problems of justice which they've identified. The right has a separate set of solutions to the problems that they've identified as unjust. Even within conservative evangelical Christianity, there is this tension here where you've got some who are social justice warriors that are all about justice, 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 and have denied the gospel and have denied Uh, the evangelical great commission call of the gospel to go into all the world, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that Christ has commanded. So there are some that are heavy on justice and have denied the call to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there are others that are simply saying, you know what, I'm that person, it's all about the gospel. We need to stop whining and complaining about what's wrong in the world. We need to stop acting like things are terrible and things are sad, and we just need to go out there and just preach Jesus. Meanwhile, we deny the call to engage in justice around us that's there every single day. And church, I don't want us to miss because what Jesus is simply saying here is, like if justice is this exhausting conversation to you and every single time that it comes up, we just want to kind of stick the fingers in our ears and run away and avoid talking about some of the difficult, terrible things that we're seeing in the world around us every single day, if we're not willing to humbly listen or even humbly pursue the call of justice in our life, then what Jesus is simply saying is that you and I are in the exact same boat as the Pharisees. And we've got an entire chapter that's dedicated to this call of hypocrisy on our side over here. And what he's saying here, church, is that we, you are missing the heart of God and and whatever it may be, you're not fully engaging. You're not fully following him and what he's called us to do. Church, like this is central to the heart of God. I mean, Isaiah 51, this is beginning to the end of scripture. Isaiah 58 is going to say, day after day, my people seek me. And they seek me out like they're eager to know my ways, but they don't do what's right. They in the commands of God. On the day of your fasting, you do as you please, and you exploit your workers. Listen to how he talks about justice and injustice here. He cares about the exploitation of workers, number one. These are people that are, these are, people that are fasting. They're observing the Sabbath that day. Uh, meanwhile, they're demanding that their employees are working hard that day and, and, and doing what they're not willing to do themselves. Your fasting ends with fighting. I can only assume that they're hangry, right? That's just how it works. You get hungry, and you get angry at the same time. You strike each other with your fists. Here's what it says in verse 6. Is this not the fasting that I've chosen? To loosen the chains of injustice and to untie the cords of the yoke. Is it not to share? Listen to how he defines this right here. Is it not to share your food with the hungry? To provide the poor with shelter? When you see the naked, is it not to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? I mean, in church, it's the exact same thing. Zechariah 7 like, when you set aside time to fa- fast, here's what he says. Like, was it really for me that you were fasting? In other words, we're like, when you were out there fasting and praying, was it really about me? Or was it really about you? Was it a diet? You needed some abs and you decided to fast a little bit? Or was it really about me and that whole thing? Of course it wasn't, verse 8. So go and minister true justice, not fake justice, and not whatever you may think it may be, but go and minister true justice. Show mercy, show compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner, the immigrant, the refugee is what he's talking about right there. Regardless of where you are on policy decisions, on the front end of the conversation, do not oppress the foreigner or the poor over here. Psalm 68, he's gonna say, I'm a father to the fatherless and I'm a companion to the widowed curse. Pay attention to the way that he identifies. What he's saying here is like, that's who I am. I am a father to the fatherless and I'm a companion to the widow. Proverbs is gonna say, you insult the poor, you're insulting me. And he's going to say, you give to the poor, you're giving to the Lord. In other words, you do it to one of them, you're doing it unto me. And to the extent that you've done it to the least of these, Jesus says a few weeks back, then you're doing it unto me. In other words, it's not just the fact that he loves justice or talking about it or things of that nature. He is identifying with the causes of, of justice all around the world. He's saying, I see you, you fatherless orphan. I see you, you widow. I see you, person over here who's, who's experiencing injustice and I'm identifying with you. That's who I am. If I go speak at a different place and they ask for a biography of who I am, I'm Aaron Armstrong, I'm a a husband to Cat, I'm a father to Caleb, I'm a pastor at Dallas Bible Church, I'm a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's who I am. Jesus is identifying himself with the plight of those who are needy and vulnerable all around the world. Don't miss this, church. It is that near and dear to the heart of God. It's exactly why he says, do not forget the more important matters of the law, things like justice, things like mercy, and things like faithfulness. Church, what's he talking about there? the more important matters of the law. I mean, it's chapter 22. We just came out of this, right? Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God, all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Fantastic. I'm a Pharisee. I understand religious practice. I've got this nailed down. That's great. Here's the second commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, well, Jesus, who's my neighbor then, right? You remember the parable of the Good Samaritan? He says, that's who your neighbor is. It's this Samaritan over there. In other words, it's your political, religious social enemy over here, the person that you loathe the most in the world, that's who is your neighbor. It is, it is man, woman, and child, white, black, brown, yellow, red, everything in between, left and right, political enemies, social enemies, that's who your neighbor is. Love your enemy, love your neighbor as yourself. That's fantastic. Okay, so, so how do I love my neighbor as myself? You look around and in the case that there is an injustice, you go and you speak up on behalf of those who need to, hear, who need to receive justice. It's exactly what's gonna be said, Proverbs 31. I love this. King Lemuel's mother is instructing him on how to be an incredible king. And here's what she says. She says, speak up on behalf of those who cannot speak up for themselves. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. What rights are you talking about there? Defend the rights of the poor and needy. Church, like that's what we're talking about right here. We're talking about the application of the second greatest command whereby you and I speak up and we generously reach out in order to elevate the vulnerable and the needy. And so you need to understand like, we're not talking about anything that conflicts with the gospel of grace what we're talking about here is justice being an extension of God's grace that reflects the heart of the father who even though he was rich for our sake he became poor so that us so that you and I through his poverty may receive his grace and then become rich church like that's what justice is is an extension of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ into the world to lift up the vulnerable and the needy, knowing that that is exactly what God has done for us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When we were lost and dead in our sins, when we were vulnerable and needy, God fixed his love on you and me, and he did not leave us alone. He did not stay silent in the middle of that time. He came to us and he sent us on Jesus Christ that you and I may receive his grace and also be lifted up. It is not in conflict with the gospel of grace. It is an extension of the gospel of God's grace. Never forget, one of, my, one of my favorite sites that we got to see when we were in Israel was going to the Holocaust Museum. Anybody have a chance to go out to the Holocaust Museum in the past? Uh, there's a number of them around the country. Uh, it was very significant going to the one there in Israel. I was struck by the contrast um, between the passivity of some and the courage and strength of other people. You go to the Holocaust Museum, and you're walking through this court of, uh, it's called the Court of the Righteous Among the Nations. And you're walking down this pathway, and you're seeing all these trees and these monuments that are dedicated to Gentile people who risked their lives for the cause of the Jews. And it's people like Corey ten Boom and story after story after story. And, and you're kind of walking into this museum, kind of going, wow, all, this, all these courageous people and then you walk in and it's a completely different story of how people were complicit in through their silence, to what took place during the Holocaust. I gonna mean, read stories of Pope, the Pope's statements, read stories of other Christian religious leaders. I read this one story from this pastor who's a Lutheran German pastor, very prominent one at the time. He spent seven years in a Nazi concentration camp. Um, There was this little monument kind of up on the wall, and we weren't allowed to take a picture of it, so I wrote down this quote, because when I read it, it just gave me chills to what was taking place. Here's what he said. He said, first they came for the socialists, and I didn't speak out because I wasn't a socialist. And then they came for the trade unionists, and I didn't speak out because I wasn't a trade unionist. What do I care? Then they came for the Jews, and I didn't speak out because I wasn't a Jew. And then they came for me, and there's no one left to speak out for me. Church, is nothing new under the sun. And I remember reading that quote and just kind of just going like, oh, would that have been me? Would that have been me in that time? Like, would I have been passive? Would I have been silent? And I sat there and I just questioned, and I just sat there and wondered, I was like, Lord, who needs my voice? Like, where am I being passive and where am I being silent today? What's going on around us where I'm sitting there kind of going, no problem, no problem, no problem, no problem. Meanwhile, like that is so near and dear to the heart of God, we can't ignore it any longer. Church, at the very least, biblical justice we've talked about in the past, it is a recognition of very three very, very simple principles. Number one, sin is the problem that plagues every single one of us. It just is. We've all sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. There's none who are righteous, not even one. It is exactly why there's no room whatsoever for religious pride anywhere. And it is exactly why the church has got to continue the Great Commission, preaching the gospel uh, everywhere that we go. Number two, sin not only kills us spiritually, but physically, relationally, and emotionally as well. You see this in the garden back in Genesis 3. As soon as sin enters the picture, Adam and Eve are hiding in their shame, emotionally disruptive, distant from God, aware of their nakedness, aware of their distance and sin. And then, of course, comes in the curse, and you remember the curse, it's just massive, massive destruction everywhere you look, and none of it was how it was ever supposed to be. I mean, there in the garden, before it all entered the picture, we were supposed to be co-equal image bearers of God, working together for the good of creation and the glory of God's name. And now we're sitting here talking about things like domestic abuse, sexual assault, Me Too, Church Too, 50% divorce rate, which is leaving families just ripped apart. None of it's how it was ever supposed to be. It's supposed to be blessing and provision, and now we're talking about things like pain and poverty. You know, back in 1980, West Dallas over here was identified as the second most dangerous neighborhood in the entire country. Like right here in our backyard, 90% of all freshmen would end up dropping out before they reached their senior year in high school. 90% would drop out and never finish high school the infant mortality rate in West Dallas, not third world countries, the infant mortality rate in West Dallas in 1980 was 42%. 42 children out of 100 dying because they did not have access to proper health care. By contrast, that number is 5% in the rest of Dallas. There's disparity there, correct? It's supposed to be this fruitful garden that was full of beauty and provision, and now we're talking about things like homelessness and joblessness and this ground that doesn't want to be worked. And church, every single social injustice that we see today is a byproduct of our sin. Spiritually, we're separated and alienated from God. Physically, our bodies are breaking down and they're falling apart. Relationally, we're divided with hostility and racism, abuse and divorce. Emotionally, we are conflicted with fear and anxiety, anger, jealousy, and shame. Praise God Almighty. That when Jesus came, he came to undo everything that sin destroyed. Church, it's it's partially right now, fully still future. Church, it's Revelation 21. Church, it is our great hope is not escaping this world. Our great hope is that Christ is going to return again, and when he does, he's gonna make all things brand new. He's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. There's going to be no more death. There's going to be no more crying. There's going to be no more mourning, no more pain, because the old things will have passed away, and all things will have been made new, exactly as we kind of see right there in the garden. Perfect unity, perfect joy absolutely no poverty or pain, and that's how God defines what's right. It's where we began. Sin came in, broke the entire thing, and he is going to come back again, and he's going to make all things brand new, which is exactly why we see in Jesus's life and ministry things like Matthew chapter 11 when he says, go back and report to John what you see and hear about me. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers they're cleansed, the deaf they hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. In other words, church, like he absolutely preached the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which he came to bring, but he was also willing to go and be the good news. Church, do not miss what happened. He touched the lepers when no one else wanted anything to do with the lepers. He went to the blind when no one else wanted anything to do with the blind. He went there and saw the lame, the crippled, the destitute, and he spoke to them. He elevated women in his day, and he, he, he talked to them publicly. He rejected racism by elevating the good Samaritan in this parable, and then later on by destroying the dividing wall of hostility, which existed in the court between Jews and Gentiles, he destroyed the entire thing, making in his flesh one brand new man in his body. Like he went to the hungry and he gave them food. He went to the possessed and he made demons flee. In other words, church, like he didn't just come to preach. He came to undo everything that sin destroyed. Church, where in the world would we be if Jesus didn't care about the other stuff? Church, where would we be if he was not a God who is just deep inside of his core and cares about it intimately? And where would we be culturally if if we just forgot the call of God upon our lives to go and to be in his hands and his feet. Thinking of Arville and Aletha Wilson over in West Dallas. Anybody heard that name before? Pastors of West Dallas Community Church heroes in this city. God has used them tremendously over the course of the past 40 years to bring about unbelievable community transformation in West Dallas today. 1980, West Dallas was the second most dangerous area of the entire country today doesn't even make a top 50 list. 1980, 90% of high school freshmen dropped out today. That dropout rate um, is down around 60%, which is still twice that of the rest of Dallas, but cut in half. The infant mortality rate used to be 42%, now it's 23%. Again, the rest of Dallas is still at 5%, and so church, there is still work to be done. But church, how in the world do you bring about community transformation for the glory of his name? Arvalon and Aletha had, had a vision of a church that would be a gospel-preaching church, that would be a Jesus-glorifying church, that would then be an extension of his hands and feet. And they would go into the community and they would care about elevating the poor, lifting up the cause of the widow, speaking up on behalf of people who couldn't speak for themselves. And so they partnered with ministries. They developed mentoring ministries like Mercy Street where they partnered people together with kids and they helped teach them life skills and things of that nature. They partner with uh, Brother Bill's Helping Hand, Basic Needs, Life Skills, Clothing, Food, and Health. I mean, they, they, they partner with medical clinics to come and to bring that infant mortality rate down and to give people basic health care in that community. Church, you go over there today, and you're going to see a Serve West Dallas initiative, which is a gathering of believers across every denominational background, uh, across church names that are all coming together to serve the community with their hands, with their feet, elevating the gospel of Jesus Christ, but at the exact same breath, elevating justice. They're seeing injustice around them, and they're choosing to speak up and to generously go out and do something about the problems that are around us. Church, where would we be if not for people like Arville and Halitha? And people in our church body that are saying, that's not right. God, where can I speak up? Where can I go and engage these problems that are here today? Where can I learn? Where can I grow? The church, all he says is just simply humble yourself. Don't neglect these greater matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness.